Welcome to To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, Pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our Executive Director. Hey, everybody. So more Job and more John, in case you haven't gotten tired of those two books, but we will wrap up Job this week and we will be into what's called the Passion Week or starting into the Passion Week with John at the end of the today. So... Um, but we're going to pick off and we've been introduced to a new character in the book of Job after the three friends have made all their accusations and Job has defended himself. We're introduced to this character of Elihu and, um, he's angry. Uh, it's one of the first things we find out about him. He's angry that Job has justified himself rather than God. And now remember the opening st- statement is that Job was blameless. Job did not sin in these things. Uh, he didn't even accuse God is what we're told right from the get go. But Job, Elihu shows up and he starts answering out of anger. We actually hear the word anger multiple times related to this character. And in some ways, like how I read it and started thinking of him is sort of like this, sort of like young seminarian who just seems to try to know it all and thinks he's got a good grasp of everything that's happening. And his theology is being formed out of this sort of reactive anger, this sort of um, um, response uh, kind of feel uh, to, to Job. Um, and, and he's starting it in a way that just at times feels kind of prideful. He's like, usually older people are wise. So I kept my mouth shut. But in this case, I'm going to speak now because I'm basically the smartest person here. And so Elihu carries with him some of that pride. So one of the interesting things about Elihu is that this is the only person in the book who has a Hebrew name. And I think you're going to see some similarities between him and maybe some of the Pharisees we're seeing in the book of John. But one thing for us to note is that Elihu did spend a long time listening but through his response, we see that while he was listening, he was not listening with empathy and understanding, but he was listening so he could make a defense. And he was not listening to learn. And so let that be a warning or a caution to us that when we are to listen and when we listen to learn, we're going to be slow to anger. But if we listen with the desire to argue or prove a point, we oftentimes will boil over and it ends up becoming destructive. Yeah. And, and Elihu initially calls for Job to be silent. He's like, Job, be silent and listen to all the wisdom I have and repent. And um, yeah, it's probably not the best uh, starting point. But right away, he's like, look, when people repent, God brings them back from the edge of destruction. So uh, he's sort of implying to Job, like, look, you need to repent from all this stuff. Well, he immediately is mischaracterizing Job and Job's argument because he's saying that Job says he's blameless and hasn't made any mistakes. But really, Job is saying, listen, I've just sacrificed for my sins. So with all that listening, Elihu did he still didn't didn't get it and Elihu continues to be angry and I would argue um, Elihu does what a lot of us does which is um, there's some ways that we sort of have previous dispositions and his is one of anger and and those previous dispositions sometimes we put upon God those characteristics that well I'm righteously angry therefore God is always righteously angry and what's happening here must be that God this must be a justice moment and Elihu really is heavy handed kind of in that in that vein and some of those things are true God does have justice and God does respond to sin but the only way Elihu thinks God works is on this idea of retributed justice that that Job you must have been hanging with the wrong company you must have been doing this because that's the only way that God would do this and, and he's so focused on that he fails to understand Job He's like, shall one who hates justice govern? And like, a lot of you thinks the situation can't be anything more than God's justice and anger in this moment because Elihu is an angry guy. And so, um, and, and he, he gets to the point where he's like, Job, you should, you should even be put to death. Like, would, would that Job be tried to the end? Like you rebellion, you're saying you deserve death. But, uh, but, and, and it's important to note, even in Job, Job never responds to all of Elihu. And, and I would argue why, because like, well, you don't feed the trolls when they're coming and trolling you. Mm-hmm. And Elihu's kind of here doing that being like, Job, 
is all your fault. You've totally messed up. God, God deserves to do this to you. Like it's God's in the right and you're in the wrong. So deal with it. That's sort of Elihu's attitude. It feels like it's worth noting here that some of what Elihu is saying is truth, but Elihu is misusing this truth and he is, he is using it to cause harm instead of good. And so this is a warning to all of us to be careful in your own life, to be aware of those around you uh, who are taking, uh, or even in your own heart, that that you don't take the truth of God and use it as a weapon for harm instead of good or evil instead of blessing. And probably a lot of us can think of some of these more Elihu-type characters that we see in yeah. social media or in the news who are trying to represent or who believe they're representing God, but they're causing a lot of harm. Yeah. And Elihu points out that many people ignore God altogether and, and it's true. And, and then bad things happen to them and suddenly they cry out to God, but God doesn't pay attention to their cries because they kind of ignored God other than that, which is fine. Uh, sure. There's moments where that happens, but then he sort of equates Job to this sort of situation, which once again, is totally wrong. It's not like Job was ignoring God and, and uh, suddenly started paying attention to God only when he was suffering. Like Job has been faithful. That's what we knew about Job right from chapter one. Yeah. And and it does seem that Elihu sees God as much more far off and distant and maybe not being influenced by faithfulness of people or wickedness of people, which we know is not true of God. Yeah. And then uh, Elihu shows up, says things like, bear with me a little and I will show you for I have yet something to say on God's behalf, which speaking on God's behalf, you, you better be right about what you're about to say. But he comes in with that confidence and, and, and I'll probably... Pro- better word is really just pride because he'll say things like truly my words are not false one who is perfect in knowledge is with you and so he's pointing out his knowledge as if it's perfect he just has a lot of arrogance in this moment it kind of blows my mind of how long this has gone on in the book of Job where God has allowed himself to be misrepresented and misunderstood and taught against. And this is, you know, part of God's perspective in the way God works that we don't fully understand. But, you know, I get I get upset and feel like I need to make things right if someone misunderstands me even slightly. And yet we have 36 chapters of God being misunderstood and misrepresented and actually work of Satan being attributed to God. And he's... Yeah. And he's allowing it for his sovereign reason and ways, but it kind of blows my mind. Yeah, it's a very slow burn in this book before God finally speaks. Um, and then Elihu kind of proclaims God's majesty once again. Like as Sarah said, Elihu will say things sometimes that are just true. Sure, they're, they're sort of, as we said, there's, there might be proverbial truths that, that get played out, that God is majestic and powerful and, and um, be careful about bringing your accusations before him. And he says things actually that Job has actually said too, but the cherry on top and sort of where Elihu finally misses it is that his conclusion then is that Job just doesn't fear God and 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 only asks out of pride. And and in Job's chapter, who has a very clear parallel to Elihu's chapter, Job clearly points out that he still has a fear of the fear of the Lord. And so once again, Elihu just doesn't read the room. Like he just doesn't understand Job. He just spouts out kind of proverbial truths about God, but not in context, not in a way that's that's actually true of Job or provides any sort of uh, help for Job. Yeah, it's Elihu was the quietest for the longest. He went last, but he thought he had the, the greatest wisdom, but we actually see probably the most foolishness in him. And then God finally answers in sort of this whirlwind and and um, and he gives a large number of rhetorical questions back to Job, um, all of which are sort of designed 
to show Job kind of how small he is in relation to the universe yeah. and uh, which God created and, and the answer to each one of those questions in a lot of ways is sort of like, yeah, I don't know. I wasn't there. I, I don't understand. And just continuing to point out what chapter 28 pointed out, God's wisdom is not like human wisdom and God's perspective is grander than anything humans can see. So God, God who makes waves and makes the architecture of the heavens like he's concerned in human affairs sure but he is so much bigger than that mm-hmm. and um and we should also note god does not once in this whole section accuse job of any sin we just had all four three friends and elihu show up and accuse job of a whole bunch of different sins but god doesn't show up and accuse him of anything per se um he just kind of speaks to uh, his character of who he is yeah God really does kind of put Job in his place. And we'll see the work of God emphasizing his total and ultimate power and sovereignty, knowledge and control over the universe. But he invites Job to kind of stand up to that. If he says, Job, if you can represent yourself, can you do these things? And Job's answer is to simply put his hand over his no mouth. No way. Uh, so he, he's he's ready to throw in his towel, but God won't let him quite do that yet and decides to keep talking to him. Yeah. And so the Lord kind of challenges. He's like, look around you, Job. Who is like me? Who who can create like me? Who has the power like me? Um, and he's sort of like, Job, you know very little. And it's and, and what's great is it's not, Job, I, I, I can do whatever I want, so shut up or anything like that. Or it's not accusatory towards Job, but it is alerting Job that that he, he may have lost sight of of the greater reality. And um, And we'll get to how the repentance ties into that in a second. Yeah, God reiterates his power and control and perspective that God has an insight that Job does not have. And just as Job's friends misunderstood Job's circumstances and situation, God is kind of pointing out that Job is misunderstanding God in a similar way. Yeah, and so I think God, through those questions and, and Job's repentance here, I think there's a recognition that God has a purpose, a, a what's called telos, a, 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 a direction uh, to to this world and God will complete his purpose. And Job quotes back some of what God has said. And it's important to remember, remember Job was a blameless man who endured unspeakable suffering. He wants an audience with God and, and he's given this rare audience. Like most of us don't get an audience sometimes with God like this, but he gets it. And, and there's this encounter. And as a result of this encounter, Job does repent. But if he's blameless, and we were told that it wasn't because of sin that that all this suffering came into his life, like what is the repentance of? And once again, the word repentance can simply mean change of mind. It doesn't have to mean like um, dealing with total moral failure or something along those lines. But every single time Job had his sort of um, speeches and defenses, one of the things that was like a constant line is Job feeling like, Life's not worth it. I wish I'd never been born. I wish my mother never conceived me. Those, those sort of statements that, that came up a lot. And in the previous four chapters, God doesn't talk about any of Job's loss and suffering. He doesn't talk about the loss of the kids. He doesn't even in, engage in the sort of what we call the the, the theodicy argument, the, the why do good things happen to bad people? He doesn't even get into that. But what God does for four chapters is remind Job the wonder and the beauty of being, of of the of the universe itself and life. And mm-hmm. and and he has a, as a creator is not done yet. And and Job, you haven't seen all that's to come, and it's not fully told. And the one who said, let there be, is the same one who brought Job into the world and is showing him this project. And so Job seems convinced that there's some good at the end. So what does Job repent of? I would argue, and, and verse six can be rendered, therefore I retract and I repent of dust and ashes. I think he's recognizing that some of the stuff he said in his laments about no hope and wanting to die, life's not worth it, was not the right thing to say. And, and that there is 
purpose to life. Mm-hmm. There is something greater to life than, and not being able to see it all isn't enough reason to, to throw in the towel and that God has still a, a greater purpose in Job's life. And, and I think he's, he's expressing that sort of contrition around his laments. I think God, or we can say that, that God questioning and challenging Job in this way is truly God's goodness and God's mercy to Job. And let's keep in mind that God did not answer Job's question as to why the suffering happened, but instead God revealed his power and plans to Job in such a way that Job was able to understand his position, his smallness before God, and he found contentment in submitting to a God who is so great and mighty, but who is also good, even though he didn't understand it. So the resolution isn't in the answering the question, but is, is in understanding who is in charge. Yeah, it, I mean, it feels a little Habakkuk. I mean, we, we talked about this already, but yeah. the sort of like, God, I don't understand the suffering. I demand an I'm going to stand on this watchtower and wait for an answer. And God's like, this, this answer is going to be too wonderful even for, your, for you to understand. And Habakkuk eventually being like, okay, okay. I, I do know my place now. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a little bit of that for Job too. And it's not like Habakkuk or Job sinned in what they were trying to do. They want an audience for God, but God's like, look, like you're not going to fully understand everything I'm mm-hmm. doing because you don't, you don't have the wisdom. You don't have the full perspective that I have. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And then uh, God uh, weighs in on Job's friends uh, that uh, he says, uh, they have not spoken of me what is right, uh, even though Job has. And so uh, the verdict on our lives is actually death. But uh, Job becomes sort of this Christ-like kind of figure in the moment mm-hmm. where he can intercede. He can pray for his friends uh, and Job, and God would spare them, which they do. Yeah, we definitely see some more Christ connection there with Job in that. And then in a surprising terms of events, everything's wrapped up in like a bow <laughs> in the final chapter. Uh, he gets restored and a lot of the stuff that he's lost. All I mean, there's there's quite a story of of, of restoration. And, and I think this, to me, at least um, in, in sort of the, the overall Bible scheme of things, uh, I think this becomes so beautifully symbolic. Like, I think the previous 41 chapters are like, most of our reality, which is there's suffering. Sometimes we understand why there is. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes it's related to sin. Sometimes it's not. And we don't always understand our suffering. We don't understand our, the purpose of our suffering. Is it for us? Is it for others? We don't always get in to see all of it. And sometimes we're given wisdom and it's amazing. And sometimes we're given perspective, but sometimes we're not, but we're in it. And then one day, like, suffering will not have the final word on the universe and there will be a restoration and a new heaven and a new earth and, and suffering and pain don't have the final word. And, and we will finally see things fully restored and living uh, almost like the conversation of the wisdom books, like Ecclesiastes isn't the final verdict. There's more under the sun than just this world. And, and we will see restoration. And I think the, the ending of Job kind of gives us that foretaste that revelation will ultimately paint for us. I love that connection. Um, mine is a little bit more here and now, but if I were to pick a favorite connection, it would be what Chris just <laughs> shared. Uh, but I do like how how it wraps up nicely. You know, it kind of resolves at the end, but it still leaves us in a, in a similar position to where Job was left. You know, how can this situation have been good? How can it just seem like everything is okay now that he still lost so much? Um, Job still lost his children and. I think the expectation for us is similar to what Job's expectation was, which is to learn and meditate and reflect on the person and the character of God and find peace in that. Um, and I do just want to make another quick note that 
it's specifically noteworthy that Job's daughters get inheritance along with his sons and are in the United States. That's a typical understanding, but in many cultures, even today, women are not given inheritance alongside their brothers. And so it's really powerful when we use Job overseas to teach women that this is how God values women. So that's an example of that. Yeah, that's great. Stuff you draw out depending on your your context and background and gender yeah. and all this kind of stuff. That's why we benefit from doing studies uh, with people that are different genders, different backgrounds, different races and stuff like that because it helps bring out all those pieces mm-hmm. of scripture. Final thoughts on Job? So I really enjoyed studying this book. Aside from kind of what we just talked about at the wrap-up, I really learned a lot about how not to interact with someone in suffering, (laughs) to be honest. Over and over, these guys projected their own worldview, their own framework on the situation, and they just got it totally wrong. So when someone is suffering, when someone is grieving, when someone is struggling, I think the invitation is to give the gift of quiet and empathetic and prayerful presence to those who are suffering, not always words or opinions or uh, theological arguments. So that, that was something I learned. Now, that's not always the case, but is at times. Yeah, I, I think doing it the format we did, I really like Job a little more. Um, yeah. Where it was a little quicker, but it, it, you get sort of more the, the narrative arc of the book. Um, and, and learning, yeah, there's a big difference between speaking what's possible truth versus saying things as absolute truth. Like if somebody's friend said like, look, maybe it's because of sin in your life, but we're not totally sure. Like that would even go over better uh, than this. But I, I think and when people are grieving, even that is probably not it. It's providing life and hope in, in grief versus piling on sense of judgments or despair. And there may be a time for repentance because sometimes suffering is a result of sin. And, and I understand that. And there may be a time for that. Um, but in the midst of griefing, like it becomes um, – this text becomes one in sort of the, 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 the wisdom trilogy, like Proverbs is generally how things work. Ecclesiastes, it's a feeling of hopelessness because you feel like God's not even in it, that it's pointless. And then Job kind of helps parse out like, look in your grief, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to sometimes suffer and not understand why things don't work out, but we're not hopeless like Ecclesiastes. And some of the ways that the universe should work doesn't always work like proverbs and and so we can sit here and go but god still has a purpose for it and god Mm -hmm. still has a meaning for it and so um it's such a helpful book um it's probably sometimes hard to to use chapter by chapter to counsel someone but as a overall narrative and, and story i think it's still really helpful in the midst of grieving to be like look we can sit here and not know why you're suffering and that's okay yeah. And and still trusting God. Yeah. And the resolve isn't always to find out why, nope. but it's to remember who. Yep. All right. Let's jump to the New Testament. And we end up with Mary anointing Jesus in Bethany. And so, um, as I said last week, um, it's helpful to sometimes look up things like anointing and what they might have meant. Uh, there's a lot of historical connotations, but even throughout scripture, it's done for Kings at their coronations. It's the Holy spirit certainly has this connection to anointing with oil, commissioning of others, there's healing and there's burial, which is explicitly uh, tied into uh, this story. But, um, yeah, all those themes I think come up even in Passion Week because Jesus will take his throne through his death and the, um, there will be a sending of the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about plenty next week. Um, all those sort of things are all tied in here. And the story does sound like other stories that the characters different compared to the other gospel writers. Um, and uh, But Judas brings up his accusation. Um, and, and I think Judas is, inter- I, I mean, certainly there's, Mary's an important character, but the Judas interaction I always find interesting too because like I, I've heard those accusations 
too, where people are like, you know what, I wish the church was more generous with stuff. And But sometimes it's from people who are like totally not generous about anything in their lives. And and I think Judas is is being a voice of some of the, those characters that, that I've, I've certainly heard the criticism by. And, and I think Jesus' use of Deuteronomy in response is like, as brilliant as possible. Like he, he uses a, for the, um, for you will never cease to be poor in their land. And the rest of the verse goes, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to poor in your land. And I think Jesus is basically telling Judas back to this, like, look, Hey, this woman is doing a special thing for me, but that shouldn't stop you from obeying the Torah and taking care of the, like that should have been something you've always been doing. Like, and not only that, but maybe Jesus or does or doesn't know that Judas has been skimping money off the, the, the thing. But, um, he's teaching him like, look, like taking care of the poor, we should have already, like, this is one item. Like your whole lifestyle should be taking care of the poor. That's what we've instructed to do. Anyways. Yeah. To go along those lines, Jesus's lack of passion for following Christ was revealed by yeah. Mary's passion oh, yeah. for Jesus. And so I would encourage us all to reflect. Are there areas where we maybe are extra critical of certain passionate ways in which people live out their faith, whether it's through giving or the way they spend their time or how they pray or whatever? And I'm not saying it is for sure, but could it be exposing a blind spot in you, uh, exposing your lack of passion in a way that instead of responding in humility is causing you to react in pride? Yeah, yeah, and then you know, on the reverse side, what does passion look like in your life, and how is it uh, pointing towards Jesus around others? Yeah, it's great. Uh, and then there's the plot to kill Lazarus. So they, uh, the leadership obviously has a PR problem that this guy who used to be dead is walking around saying, hey, Jesus rose me from the dead. Uh, and so the best solution that they can come up with is let's kill him. And so let's make the dead guy dead again so that he can no longer tell his story. And so that's their plan. It's just crazy to me how offensive Jesus is. Like, he's only doing good things. He's healing blind people. He's resurrecting the dead. Uh, but every time he does something powerful like this, the power of the religious leaders is challenged. So they want to destroy these good works to maintain control. I mean, they want, they're willing that people die and suffer so that they can hold on to control. And that's. Yep. Also kind of crazy. Yeah, they're, they're pretty rough. Then we get the triumphal entry, the sort of Palm Sunday story. We've we've talked about this for, yes. this will be the fourth time through, and there's a lot of details, Old Testament imagery, layers from Zechariah, there's, there's all sorts of things we've talked about, nationalism imagery, stuff going on with Rome and images of of Pilate coming from the West versus Jesus and his donkey, like so many things. So if, if you hadn't listened to some of those old ones, go back and listen and find those sections and understand us unpacking the Palm Sunday story. Yeah. And then some Greeks uh, suddenly show up uh, in town because they've part of the diaspora that have decided to to come to Jerusalem for Passover, which would have been mandatory in a lot of ways. And so, um, which is funny because in the previous chapter, people wondered when Jesus said, Hey, where I'm going, you guys can't go. And they're like, are you going to preach to the Greeks in the diaspora? And now they're here. And Jesus is pointing out, um, stuff that it's going to be strange for some of these people who have been taken interest in him. Um, sort of like, look, strange as it seems to you that the Messiah needs to die. Like that's what's going to happen. That's the course of nature. Like a seed goes through the same thing. It goes into the ground and it doesn't get the glory. It doesn't become the plant until it basically symbolically in their mind dies going into the ground. Um, and, and he points out that discipleship is going to be the same way mm -hmm. for a lot of you. And it's going to be upside down and it's not going to be about preserving your life, but willing to lose it. So um, he's starting to lay out what is really heavy handed in Luke, but John hasn't hit on quite as much uh, about the cost of discipleship. Yeah. It's a pretty heavy call. 
Um, and then Jesus uh, continues to just befuddle these people about his death. Um, and, and he has anguish himself and then God speaks to him and the people hear it. And Jesus is like, look, this God didn't say these things for me. Like I already knew I was going to die. This is for you guys to hear. Like you need to understand that I must die in order for this to work out. Uh, but once again, they just struggle and, and you got to understand why. I mean, the, 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 the understanding of Messiah uh, didn't take into account a lot of the suffering servant of Isaiah. And it was very much supposed to be this political leader who's going to kick out Rome. It's going to establish sort of the kingdom of Israel forever uh, in the line of David. And so um, to, to hear the person that might be that Messiah start talking about how he's probably going to die. I mean, it, it, it should, it would have, I, I mean, if I was a, a, a an old Testament nerd first century in Jerusalem, I would probably think that Jesus was crazy too. I mean, it's, it's struggle to understand exactly what he's talking about. I really appreciate Jesus being, you know, he's troubled and he wants deliverance, but he knows that that's not right for him to be delivered at this point. And his prayer is father, glorify your name. It's such a powerful prayer. And it's a good thing for any of us to pray in situations that feel impossible or hopeless. Father, glorify your name. Yeah, and, and Jesus points out, and it connects it to Isaiah, this just warning that people will be around for the, for the teaching of God, but they're going to reject it. They're not going to understand it. They're not going to have ears to hear. Uh, and John John points out as a narrator that many desire to follow Jesus, but because they were so afraid of the others or religious leadership, they, they, they wouldn't speak up. They wouldn't stand up for it. Yeah, it's a real difference here between believing Jesus and then confessing him. And yeah. John is kind of calling out here those who won't confess him. Maybe they believe in him, but they're not confessing him because they love the glory of man more than the glory of God. And we all have different places where we're tempted to love the glory of man more than the glory of God. Yeah, and then the end of chapter 12 is really the the summation of um, Jesus's public ministry. He's, from this point on, he's going to be just with his disciples until his trial and crucifixion. And so um, this is sort of the end cap. And John includes almost like a summary in this little paragraph, like Jesus was sent by God the Father to offer eternal life. And so he just sums it up pretty pretty directly there. Yeah. And then uh, Jesus goes off with his disciples. And I love the beauty of sort of the opening line. It's like the final hours at hand. Like this is the end week. His disciples, the closest to him, he loved all the way to the end. And, and now we're going to watch for several chapters how Jesus loves those closest to him and in this last week. And so uh, he starts it by washing their feet. And that certainly has two layers to it. Um, I think there's a spiritual layer. That's why Peter will say something, or Jesus will say to Peter, unless you let this, let me do this for you, you have no part in me, of me, which is is I think much more bigger than unless you just let me, unless, unless you let me showcase uh, my servant nature. No, I think he's pointing out, Peter, you need me to wash you clean. Like you need to understand that you're dirty, Peter, which symbolically would have been sin. And that cleansing only comes through my hands. And so he's, he's washing his feet to, to show that. But I think there is still the servant humility side to what he does because he tells his disciples, go and do the same. Now they're not going to die in such a way that they atone for anybody else's sin, but they certainly understand sort of the, the sacrifice servant nature of what Jesus is doing as well and could communicate the greater truth of the spiritual layer as they go and serve others. There's so many different lessons in this story and so many different yeah. teachings that you can pull out. One of the things that stood out to me was just that Jesus didn't discriminate between washing the feet of his disciples and washing Judas's feet. Nope. And we, in following the example of Christ, are to do the same. We are to love our enemies and offer the same service to friends and enemies alike. Yep. And and speaking of um, being uh, with in, in fellowship with those who are enemies and friends, like he's he's breaking bread 
with Judas and actually uses the breaking of bread as the identifier for the one who's going to betray him. And um, Jesus uh, is here. And, and there's even the, the way John tells it, there's the disciple that, that Jesus loved. And then there's the, the one who would betray. And uh, we sort of see that flanking in this moment, the, the, the storytelling of, of these two individuals. Yeah. It's, crazy to me that the guys who knew Judas the most closely didn't actually know that Judas would be the one to betray. And it feels relevant to some of the talks about false teachers that we even read about in the epistles. So you can't always spot these fake disciples or these wolves in sheep's clothing well, but we can pray that the Lord will bring their actions to light for sure. Yeah. And then, um, we get into the teaching of the new commandment and I mean, Sarah and I were joking before recording, but like sometimes you get these sentences out of Jesus's mouth and, and they're just befuddling. It's hard to like parse out where Jesus is like, I, I get the glory from the father and then the father's glorified in me. Then through me, the glory is put on display, but the, it's just the glory of the father, but it's also my glory. And like, he'll say these things. You're like, I'm not totally following. And that's okay. <laughs> like, I think, yeah, even translators are like, Oh, oh no. I don't totally know who the subject and object <laughs> is of all these things. Um, and that's Okay. But Jesus's glory will be on display yes. as well as the Father's. And so that's certainly the point of, it seems like that text. But um, Jesus reminds the disciples, the same thing he told the people in Jerusalem, look, I'm going to have to go away. But here's a commandment I need you to live by. It's like he's giving like the greatest commandment for them, love each other. But the love that he teaches them is not uh, love as you want to be loved, which is a little bit more sort of that that old school, um, treat your neighbor as yourself kind of, kind of teaching. But he's like, look, love as I have loved you, mm. which is such a step beyond. Like our baseline definition of love love isn't just how I want to receive love. Our baseline definition of love is how Christ loved, uh, which is totally sacrificial. It's totally willing to um, give up even your own life for the sake of another. And um, and that becomes for him an evangelistic tactic, tactic for the world. Something about the Christ other centered love will cause people to take notice of what it looks like to be a disciple. And as we consider that sort of love, you know, I mean like loving people is a really common and popular and um, encouraging statement, even just in our world. But what's different is the Christian's definition of love versus the world's definition of love. So as you think about this, make sure you know a biblical definition of love, but it is one of the best forms of evangelism we have. So the challenge for love is how, um, is how we treat people who cut us off on the interstate or who disagree with our political views and everything in between the world will know and believe in Jesus. If we love one another, even in our church communities. And what does that look like? Well, we saw it in the foot washing and in Jesus's example of even laying down his life for Lazarus. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, we see, we see the love in so many ways, but, um, it's important, yeah, to have that biblical definition. Yes. It's washing feet and it's peeling blind people, but it's also sometimes telling people like, look, go and sin no more. And, and Hey, the, 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 the person you're sharing your home with isn't your husband. And that's probably not okay either, but go live, live a different life. There's more in your life. There's more to be had than what you're, what you're living. And it's, it's in living for Christ. And so, um, all those things are still included in all those definitions. Um, and then lastly, uh, Peter at least seems to recognize that, like Jesus is going to die. And he's like, look, I, I'm willing to go with you, Jesus. I'm even willing to die for you. And Jesus is like, well, Peter, uh, uh, that's not going to happen. Like any will eventually, but he's like, Peter, you're, you're going to deny me instead of owning up to, to being associated with me. Like when, when this all goes down in the next few days, like you're, you're going to die me and, and we're going to certainly see that happen. Yeah. Psalm 104, in the second half at least. 
Yeah, well, we see God's provision in all of his creation, but he he's, of course, has provided for us physically, but he's also provided salvation. Um, and it's really amazing to think about how much scripture points out God through creation. And so look around, notice God, notice creation, and see how God reveals himself to you through it. It's awesome. Yeah, it definitely felt like it has some parallels to Job in some of the texts where it's like, you can almost replace the you in the psalm where it's like, you made this thing and you did this thing with, with Job and, and God saying, I did this thing. And I, I, I'm the one who creates, I'm the one that brings forth life. I sustain life. Like even the language, it's like, God, if you were to turn your back on this, everything would die. And so mm-hmm. um, he's the only one worthy of praise because he's the one who sustains things. And then Psalm 41. Yeah. Well, I think we've got good perspective here. David's closest friends have abandoned him and, or they brought harm to him, but, but he remembers that God is just and delights in him. Yeah. And these are one of the various Psalms where we try to align them with some of the words in, in the text. So the author is feeling certainly betrayed, but Jesus mm-hmm. himself picks up on this very Psalm, uh, to speak of what, uh, what, um, Judas has done, uh, in the midst of this. And so, and you got to imagine, I mean, Judas has been spending three years with this guy and, um, and, and whenever, uh, oh man, I saw a quote the other day and I'm, I probably won't remember it, but like Judas had the best smoker plater and had the best teaching and the best, all, all these things. And, mm-hmm. and yet still didn't come to faith. So, um, Sometimes even even the the perfect environment is not the same as repentance and faith and um, making sure that that your heart's in check. But Jesus also probably felt betrayed because he has poured his life into this man for three years, walked around, lived a life with one of him as one of these twelve plus various other disciples that are around with them, and and yet this one's going to ultimately lead to Jesus's death. Yes, for a greater purpose, but the feeling of betrayal, the feeling of betrayal of a friend. Mm-hmm. Next week. So next week we're hopping back into Isaiah. And as you read Isaiah, remember, we're going back into kind of prophetic literature. Uh, But look for the repeated words and ideas. You'll read a lot of fear not, talk about rivers in the desert, the coastlands. Pay attention to those things because there's something that's being communicated there. And in the New Testament, Jesus is going to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit using different words like helper, things like that. So what words and descriptors does Jesus use to describe the Holy Spirit? And how how does that compare to your current understanding or experiences or interactions with the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Yeah. As we get to the, some of the more messianic parts of Isaiah, um, we should sometimes pause and think through, all right, how would a ancient audience understand this in their context? Like what would they be thinking of? And the, the word spoken before we jump ahead and immediately go, well, clearly that's about Jesus. Like, would they hear it that way? Would they immediately go, Oh, that's about some, some of David that's coming sometime in the future. Or they hear it a little bit different. And, and does that, shade or, or help you understand maybe what uh, Isaiah might be saying in that, that moment. Um, because we, we certainly know there's prophecies that were about a certain context, but ultimately are fulfilled in Jesus. And some of those might be uh, throughout Isaiah. And then New Testament, Sarah kind of stole really the main thing I wanted to talk about, but it's important. Like Jesus does, doesn't spend a ton of time talking about the Holy Spirit, but he does from multiple sections here. So he's leaving, he's going to be sending the spirit and, and when, as a church and, and sometimes particularly in sort of some of the theological crowds that, that we can run with. Sometimes it's Father, Son, and Holy Scripture, and the Holy Spirit becomes sort of this forgotten piece. And yet, Jesus, as he's leaving, is like, this is really important for you guys to get uh, with his disciples. And so for us to really grasp and have an understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit is important. So uh, we'll talk about that next week. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you.